Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When people write about the Oakland Police Department, they tend to use superlatives. They call it the most watched police department in California, or a model for the state, a dirty police force that's getting clean. But these superlatives, they wouldn't apply at all if it wasn't for two men, a cop named Keith Batt and a suspect named Delphine Allen. His name is a little bit um, sort of low-key famous in Oakland. People who know a lot about the police department and police community relations, they'll, they'll know Delphine Allen's name. I called up Darwin Bond Graham, who reports for the Oakland Side News website, and I asked him to tell me how Keith Batt and Delphine Allen's stories intersect. He said it all started in July of 2000. Delphine Allen was a, a young man who was stopped by the Oakland police in the summer of 2000, late at night. He was walking across a street holding a soda can or maybe a can of beer. He was allegedly kidnapped uh, by two police officers, driven under a freeway bridge in West Oakland, brutally beaten. There were photographs of his face shown later on. He had, his eye was bloodshot. He had bruises all over. So, I mean, Alan had a nightmare experience that night. Keith Batt was one of the cops who stopped Delphine Allen back in 2000. But he was a rookie, still in training, just 23 years old. He kicked Allen a couple of times, and then he regretted it. Later on, Batt's training officer sort of chastises him and says, you know, wh- why'd you hold back? You should have you know, you should have thrown a few more blows or something like that. They had a big argument, and Bat's training officer told him, you know, you've got to resign. You can't be a police officer. You just can't cut it. So Keith Bat goes, you know, back to the police headquarters building in Oakland, and he's putting in his, you know, letter of resignation. And uh, this older training officer who was accepting the letter said, you know, hey, you know, you can... You can say this, or you can tell the truth. The truth set in motion legal proceedings that would remake Oakland's police force. And Delphine Allen, that suspect Keith Batt couldn't forget, he became the face of all this change. Allen went on to become the named plaintiff in the civil rights lawsuit against the Oakland Police Department, alleging that this kind of behavior by police officers brutal random beatings, planning drugs on people, uh, that this was systematic. After all this, dozens of convictions were overturned. A federal monitor was put in charge of reforming the cops. But now, a judge has ruled the department can enter a probationary period. If they go a year with no screw-ups, they'll be free from oversight. It's got some Oakland residents worried. There's still deep cultural problems uh, at play 
the way that police officers think about the world, the way they act and the kind of institutions that they build, they're still going to lead to uh, constitutional violations, particularly against vulnerable populations, particularly against communities of color. Today on the show, after two decades of police reform in Oakland, what's been fixed and what is still broken? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Most reporting on Oakland's efforts at police reform start with the summer of 2000, when the Delphine Allen story broke. It became known as the Riders Scandal because that's what rogue officers were called back then, riders. But Darwin Bond-Graham says the story goes back further than that, decades further. He says changes in the racial makeup of Oakland shifted the way the city was policed. By the 80s, the city was majority Black, and as Black politicians got more power, they sought to tame aggressive law enforcement tactics. And so by the 1990s, There's a lot of discussion about reining in police brutality and having the police be more responsive to the needs of Black Oakland. But in the late 90s, Jerry Brown is elected mayor of Oakland. A white guy. Yeah. uh, Former California governor. But he he ran on a campaign of cleaning up Oakland and reducing crime. And so when he was elected, he got rid of the police chief appointed a new police chief who was a bit more aggressive, who came out of the Oakland Police Department's like anti-narcotics unit. And Brown, what a lot of people say about Brown is that his administration gave the Oakland Police Department marching orders to go out and be more aggressive again, to engage in the kind of like old policing that they had once engaged in to clamp down on drug dealing and all sorts of other crime. The riders emerged from this tough-on-crime approach. And in that summer of 2000, Oakland residents said the riders terrorized them, planting drugs on suspects, falsifying reports, dishing out all kinds of violence and abuse. They would go out and in, a squ- in squad cars, and they also used an undercover uh, minivan And they would drive around West Oakland and they would find people who were just kind of hanging out on the corner or sitting on the steps. And they would jump out and chase these guys down, you know, and pat them down, search them and see if they could find narcotics or weapons on them. Now, that was kind of their MO. That was their that that was the thing that they loved to do. And they would do it late at night. Did they represent a new kind of policing or something distinctive in Oakland or a distinctive part of the Oakland police? Or were they really just representative of how Oakland police were doing their work? That's who the riders were. These are a small group of very aggressive cops. 
who just kind of ran roughshod over the community. The way that the rest of the police department, the way that they kind of like tie into the behavior of the riders is that the riders and a handful of other officers like them at the time who were doing this stuff, they were able to get away with this for years on end because other officers in the department would not inform on them. They would not complain. They would not push back. It was that blue wall of silence or it was the 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 larger culture, the police culture of like, you know, not wanting to like rock the boat. You know, actually to this day, over two decades later now, the police officers who were identified as the riders, those guys are still friends with a lot of active and retired police in the Bay Area. These are people credibly accused of beating suspects, planting drugs on them. Exactly. And these guys are like friends with, you know, retired police chiefs, with current police captains. They regularly attend social functions of the Oakland Police Officers Association, the union that represents the Oakland police. Their reputation is not that they were dirty, corrupt, brutal officers. Their reputation within the ranks of the police departments in the Bay Area is that they were wrongfully accused by this scheming rookie and this uh, overzealous uh prosecutor at the time and that they were they were sacrificed uh, because of politics internal to the city of Oakland and that they didn't re- they really didn't do anything wrong that's that's their reputation Keith Batts reputation amongst many police officers is to this day that he's a rat that he's a bad person that he turned on fellow officers and did something you shouldn't do and all of that points to the fact that what the writer's scandal exposed was this culture of policing in which police officers are told very early on, you know, you don't, you don't inform on fellow police officers. It's like this blue wall of silence. You don't, you don't, if you see things that other police officers have done that are wrong, just keep your mouth shut. After Keith Bat blew the whistle on what he'd seen, The writers were taken to court, but after two of the longest trials in California history, none of them were found guilty of any crimes. Meanwhile, a lot of people in Oakland thought the city's policing issue went beyond a few bad officers. Two civil rights attorneys, John Burris and Jim Shannon, decided to dig in. These two attorneys had been filing dozens of lawsuits against the Oakland Police Department for you know, the better part of like two decades before the writer's case landed in their lap. So they were filing like one-off cases, one after another. They were. um, They were also really tired of suing Oakland for police brutality. And so for many years, they had been looking for a case where they could uh, bring a class action to try to force the city into a settlement that could result in systematic reforms. They wanted to essentially work themselves out of a, you know, out of the job of suing Oakland because they found that no matter how high the financial penalty they were able to win in prior cases was, it wasn't effectively pressuring the city to change the way it was uh, policing. So how is this case different? So the writer's case was, was different because 
they had they had a few things. They had over a hundred plaintiffs alleging the same egregious unconstitutional conduct by multiple police officers. They had the testimony of Keith Batt, the rookie police officer, who gave really unimpeachable testimony and evidence that false reports had been written, that drugs had been planted and things like that. And so when they brought this case and when they presented it, the city's response was, how do we make this go away? What can we do? Because the city was afraid that if these 119 plaintiffs went to trial. I imagine it could bankrupt the city. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about the city of Oakland would have had to have floated bonds or something to pay, to pay off a settlement that big, you know. So the city's incentive was to settle this thing for as low a financial amount as possible. So I guess that gave the lawyers leverage. They could say, well, we can get a lower settlement if we can agree to something on paper about how you're going to behave. Yeah, exactly. They had, they had a huge amount of leverage. And so they were able to bring in some experts and draft what's called the negotiated settlement agreement. And so the, the exchange, the bargain was basically this. Oakland pays about $10 million to settle the claims of these plaintiffs. And if Oakland does that, it also has to agree to the settlement agreement The settlement agreement is essentially a consent decree where the city promised under the watchful eye of a federal judge and a court-appointed police monitor to reform itself. They came up with this this big list of 52 tasks, everything from like, here's how you fix your internal affairs unit so that you ensure that police misconduct is properly reported, investigated. Here's how you set up your administration so that there's not squads of officers running around Oakland unsupervised, able to just like beat people up and engage in this crazy behavior. And the judge and the police monitor, you know, are are watching over all of this, checking off the boxes when these various reforms are completed. It's interesting because you've talked about how in the Ryder's case, the original case, the criminal case, it was sort of focused on these bad apples, a few people who are really doing a lot of harm as police officers. But to me, it seems like with this negotiated settlement, the civil case and what came out of it, it really took on the whole department, not just a few people, which is a different and more complicated project. That's exactly right. The criminal prosecution of the writers was focused on the individuals, right? John Burris and Jim Channon were more interested in in showing that that kind of behavior, those sorts of incidents, that they didn't happen in a vacuum. They weren't the product of bad apples. They were the product of a bad department, and the department needed to be reformed. And so the negotiated settlement agreement You're right. It's a vastly more complex undertaking. And that's partly why it's gone on so long. That's partly why it's been going on for almost two decades, and it's still not completed. When we come back, just how effective has federal oversight been? 
how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. In 2003, this negotiated settlement agreement is ratified and federal oversight starts for the Oakland Police Department. How did the police department change? Like, did it begin changing immediately? Not at all. I think the story that's told even within the police department these days is that after they signed the negotiated settlement agreement, they took this thick, weighty document and they just kind of shoved it in a desk drawer and forgot about it. (laughs) That doesn't sound effective. (laughs) Yeah, the the numerous reforms that they were required to undertake, they did not eagerly embrace these things. Jim Channon told me once that... That's the civil rights attorney. Yeah. He he told me once that it was his impression that the leadership at the Oakland Police Department thought that when they signed the negotiated settlement agreement, that Channon and Burris and the federal judge would kind of stick around for a few years, but then they would get tired of it and they would just sign off and go away. And that's not that's, of course, not at all what happened. There's another way of um, looking at this to kind of show how problematic the police department's approach was to reform. When they signed the negotiated settlement agreement in early 2003, they were promising to undertake all of these uh, tasks to prevent brutality, prevent corruption. Just a couple months after they signed it, the U.S. invasion of Iraq started. And there was a protest at the Port of Oakland because these Bay Area activists had figured out that one of the shipping companies at the Port of Oakland 
was moving war material to the Middle East. Hmm. And so the Oakland Police Department showed up to this protest and started shooting the protesters with wooden dowels loaded into shotgun rounds, beanbags, tear gas. The police officers mounted on motorcycles were engaging in this bump, B-U-M-P, technique where they would ride their motorcycle into a crowd and hit people. And then officers on foot would run up behind them with uh, batons and beat people. These are not people concerned about a negotiated settlement. Yeah, these officers either were completely unaware that their department had just signed a reform agreement to prevent brutality, or they didn't care. And it's probably more the latter. The department ended up getting sued over that port protest, and they had to write this very complex crowd control policy about how to respond to protest and not trample on people's constitutional rights. None of that should have happened had they taken the negotiated settlement agreement seriously. The years that followed were filled with stops and starts. The Oakland police would pass meaningful reforms, and then a scandal would break, like when police violently cracked down on Occupy Oakland protesters in 2012, or got busted for sex trafficking a teenage girl in 2016, or were exposed for running a racist Instagram account in 2020. The cycle of progress and backsliding makes it hard to know how much the department has changed for good, even after years of interventions. But Darwin thinks one reform that's going to have a lasting impact is the creation of a civilian oversight board. Oakland has one of the strongest police commissions now in the country. This commission can uh, fire the police chief if they want to. They can fire the police chief. Yeah, they get to set police policies around things like whether or not cops can use chokeholds. And these are just civilians. Yeah, these are just civilians. They have an investigative wing that investigates misconduct cases and recommends discipline. The police commission was set up to be the institution that continues forward with the accountability and reforms after the negotiated settlement agreement uh, wraps up and the federal judge and monitor uh, go away. So essentially, after the reform program that was set up after the writer's scandal, when that is gone, possibly next year, it's the police commission now that will undertake the work of accountability and oversight. All of the scandals over the last few years are interesting to me because Just in the last few months, the judge overseeing the negotiated settlement ruled that the Oakland Police Department can enter this probationary period where maybe, finally, this negotiated settlement will be lifted and, you know, the the department will be operating without this oversight. When you heard that news, I'm sort of curious how you reacted Yeah, we've heard this before. In 2015, the department was sort of uh, readying itself to come out from federal court oversight. The civil rights attorneys and the judge and the monitor, they, they all seemed to think that OPD was very close. And so they were readying themselves for the same sort of probationary period. So this is not new. We've been here before. What happened in 2015 was, of course, 
scandal emerged that involved Oakland police officers sexually exploiting a young woman, and the department had covered a lot of that up. And so that that scandal set the department back. Maybe it's different this time. Maybe OPD is finally at a point where they realize that if there's another scandal, they need to make it public. Like it can't be something that, you know, the public finds out about, the mayor finds out about, or the judge finds out about through the media or through a whistleblower. The department has to be honest about its own failings and it's gotta, gotta try to hold people accountable in a fair, a fair and transparent way. And so if that is different this time, then maybe they can finally fulfill the letter of the reforms in the negotiated settlement agreement. But I think the problem with reforming policing, and this, this isn't just about the Oakland Police Department now, is that you can check off all of these boxes on different policies and, and technical changes that you've made and show that you can sustain those changes on paper. The really hard thing is changing the culture of policing. And I don't think that OPD is quite there. I don't know that any police department is there. And I think if you look at contemporary policing in America, there's still deep cultural problems at play. If you want to reform policing in America, the job that's cut out right now is is just massive. You're gonna, you know, there's tens of thousands of police departments and law enforcement agencies in America. It's a very long list of cities and counties that are gonna have to be visited and engage in a consent decree type reform process, and also engage in a process of like examining police culture. The work has barely begun. Darwin, I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Darwin Bond Graham is the news editor at the Oakland side. He and his partner, Ollie Winston, have been covering the Oakland Police Department for almost 20 years. Currently, they're working on a book about the police reforms in Oakland. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Carmel Del Shad. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. We're getting a bunch of support right now from Sam Kim. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed tomorrow. Talk to you then. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.